Welcome to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest podcast, number 914, with Dr. Simon Malte about his new book entitled Healthcare Anonymous Put Yourself First to Avoid Anxiety, Addiction, and Burnout. This podcast, number 914, is brought to you by Sarah Payton, author of a new book entitled Affirmations for Turbulent Times. Resonant Words to Soothe Body and Mind. If you want to learn more about Sarah Payton, her books, and her online courses, please visit her website at www.sarahpayton.com. That's www.sarahpeyton.com. And now for a featured podcast, please listen to my interview with Dr. Simon Malteus about his new book entitled Healthcare Anonymous, put yourself first to avoid anxiety, addiction, and burnout. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me, where are you joining me from, Simon? Uh, I'm actually in Montana now. So Mo- uh, Montana, whereabouts in Montana? Whitefish? Uh, no, Billings. Billings. So, uh, yep, absolutely. Uh, uh, Yellowstone Medical Center. Okay, Yellowstone Medical Center, and we're going to be speaking with Simon about his new book called Healthcare Anonymous, Put Yourself First to Avoid Anxiety, Addiction, and Burnout. And is it Maltais? Did I say uh, it Malte. right? Malte. Uh, Malte. Is that yep. French? Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. My last name is French too, but no one ever says voisin. So voisin, I am yeah. <laughs> Malte. All right. So this is this is a book that uh, for all of my listeners, uh, you can go to the website. It's pretty easy if you want to learn more, but it's healthcareanonymous.com. We'll have a link to that website as well. But it's really about the critical issue of what he calls healthcare disease. And we'll get into that during the interview. Um, I'm going to tell my listeners uh, a bit about you. Simon is an active cardiac surgeon and one of the world's largest provider of healthcare services, born in Quebec, Canada. He's a French Canadian and board certified from Canada in cardiac surgery. Uh, he further has a doctorate degree in biomedical engineering and heart regeneration. He is internationally recognized leader in the field of heart transplantation, medical heart devices, and alternative cardiac interventions. Uh, before 40, uh, he was raised to lead two world-renowned programs in his specialty and has among the youngest promoted associate professors at the nationally recognized institution. He's a frequent keynote speaker. He's published more than 160 articles. He's contributed to numerous books. He also has worked on two different countries uh, in the healthcare systems. So he's uniquely qualified to speak about this considering uh, his schedule is not only super busy and packed and filled with, as he says in the book, uh, anxiety, addiction, and burnout and stress. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're going to be talking about that. You know, Simon, in the introduction to your book, you tell a story of, about yourself and you paint a picture of a physician who was, you know, basically burnout, stress, and on the brink of um you know, you just couldn't do it anymore. It was it was a really interesting intro involved for my listeners. Definitely. You state that you almost gave up your life to save hours, meaning the people that were uh, that you're treating. 
Can you tell a story and what pushed you to this brink? You know, there are a lot of physicians out there and I'm sure a lot of them get to this point, but they don't want to talk about it. And I think what you're doing is breaking open the yolk and the egg and saying, hey, community, let's talk about it. Right. No, it's been, uh, well, thank you for the invitation, Greg. I really appreciate it. And um, it's been a, uh, it's certainly been a journey. And um, I was, um, I was just talking with a friend recently about the book and more of a less, uh, in an informal way and how this all came together. And I guess it really started really early where um, med school was a rat race. Residency was a rat race, um, meaning a race to always be the best, always be, um, always, you know, reach the heights, publish, be in meetings, be the center of attention. Um, exactly like you see it in those shows on TV, right? So, um, and so um, it felt like a sprint until, until I'd say about uh, five years ago, I'd say that I was, I was a pretty good contender of Olympic sprinting. You know, let's say um, uh, I was very good at it, was publishing a lot. And then all of a sudden, um, not all of a sudden, but progressively, there was a little bit of things that I've noticed that um, were happening. I got, I got frequent visits to AHR. I uh, was angry. Um, I was heavier physically. <laughs> um, getting to work was a bit harder. And it was all, all not all together, but sort of progressively. Um, a big part of that process was empathy. I, I, I started less caring about, about patients' issues or complications. It always was their fault if they had a complication. They were too sick or they were... And so there was things that I noticed were changing. I didn't like operating anymore, it was more of a job. And so um, I was tired of being on planes. I was getting through divorce. And so there was just a lot of things happening. And, and, and I, was, I couldn't just find a common denominator. I, 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 um, and I started to write. And that, I mean, writing meaning for myself. I mean, right. so one of the things I've, I've learned during at the time therapy was that you need to write when it goes well and when it doesn't go well. And so it wasn't going well. So I started to write and then, and then that's how the book really came along. That was the uh, two years ago. That was the initiation. That was the, uh, that was the, the start of a process where I started to think about where, what environment I was in and how I was conditioned to always do more. And, and then how, that's how I learned it. That's how I was functioning into it. I couldn't say no. And, and I thought that was the only way to do it. I mean, I was at the Mayo Clinic. I was the vice chair of the department. I was not even 40 then. And, and I was more published than people that have 65 years, of, you know, years old and have been in practice for 30 years. But when re- when did you sleep, Simon? I mean, you obviously didn't get much sleep, and <laughs> and did you meditate? And did you keep a gratitude? I, I didn't do journal? any of that stuff. No, uh, yeah. I didn't do any of that stuff. I was drinking to go to sleep. I was uh, a lot of times uh, tired in the morning, getting up. Um, I I talk about it in the book. I'm for many years. I just um, I just fell fell to sleep. I mean, not not fell to sleep. I just crashed to sleep. I right. mean, you know. Uh, right. And and just fell and woke up in the morning at 4 a.m. and continued to work and got up to work at five and just felt normal until it didn't, right? Uh, right, right, right. It caught up with you. It caught up with me. Yeah. So, 
um, I couldn't function anymore. I was drinking to sleep and um, drinking quite a bit. And 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 you're right when you talked about it in the introduction. It it's not something, especially as a male. I mean, I know this male female conversation is always difficult, but I mean, charged with a lot of uh, things socially, I guess. But being a male in heart surgery and medicine and and going through depression because that's what I had addiction with alcohol and having um, the 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 willingness and or the need to talk about it wasn't that easy because well I mean look in the community you face a lot of repercussions when you come public like you have and I, I want to give you credit uh, the 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 community of support around you other doctors nurses hospital administrators whatever they all need to be supporting someone like yourself. Um, and there is a stigma attached to a young male like yourself kind of coming out about burnout, stress, whatever, right? And I'm sure you saw this in many of your colleagues as well, but they weren't as bold as you are. And I want to give you credit. And so let's talk about this a little bit. You know, in your estimation, why does healthcare disease, as you call it, exist? You mentioned many of the things like being a resident and how things happen in the hospitals and all the rest of it. And you state that the true landscape is that we are ill-equipped to take care of the strangers at the expense of our own personal deficit. And we practice in a culture that shames weakness. So that's one big clue right there. Uh, what needs to change in your estimation uh, to eliminate healthcare disease? Well, I mean, it's a complex definition, right? So you, you pointed out a few things. Uh, I describe in the book um, some some uh, path to understanding the disease. And, and the way I, I describe it is it's usually a combination of things. When you get sick, it's not only one thing usually. It's, the, it's when you're, uh, let's say you catch an infection, it's the infection being in a susceptible host and Uh, that has in his, in, within a special environment, either hot or cold, cold. And so when, when, when you have this disease, the burnout, the depression, the addiction, that's the acute moment where it manifests itself. But there's a, there's a process for which over many years, you yourself develop characteristic traits um, that are sometimes imposed too early. You know, you spend your 20s, 20, 15 years studying And, and you're faced with death, you're faced with mortality, you're faced with heavy schedule, not sleeping, and you're only like 22 years old. And so the, the, these character traits are really forced into you where, um, where you're really not mature enough to really understand them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one. And so there, there's that. There's this, this, this medical notion that you always have to perform the perfectionism and the and ego becomes a big part of who you are. So that's the host. So there's things related to yourself that uh, are important. Then there's the environment. And so there's things about the system, like, um, you know, the work hours, the demand, the number of cases, the changes over years that have happened uh, in the system to force on us changes to, to meaning, you know, we need to uh, reach a certain quota for surgery we need to generate a certain amount of money and that's all tracked. And so the, the uh, 
movement towards administrative management of medicine or monetizing medicine from from the last let's say 20 years has really had an impact on the provider and and so the environment is also uh, it's exactly at times how you see it in the in the uh in the movies again right right shows, you know and then and then there's the way you start interacting with them and so when those three and so that means your ability to say no your ability to manage your schedule your ability to cope with death and things and so that becomes your your sort of interaction with it and so when the host has a problem when the environment is is tough and then your ability to cope with it is is over many years uh, uh, wrongly equipped that's where you sort of have these moments where then the depression and so when people say burnout in high intensity environment or healthcare it's the end result in my opinion and that's what the book is all about of showing that Burnout and, and depression and, and addictions are the end result of this complex interact those complex interactions over many years that have been imposed or learned. Uh, you know, almost medicine. almost like uh, you know, it's the perfect firestorm. You know uh, what you just uh, talked about. Yet on the other hand, um, you know, it's like this quote from the Buddha: "There's suffering." And then there's the end of suffering, but we create our own suffering. You know, this right. is a this is a podcast on personal growth. Right. Uh, so all these listeners out there are they're not judging. They're saying it's a unique position that Simon got into. Simon's the only one that can get out of it. Um, and no one else. And this isn't a judgment either. No one else is kind of to blame for where we go. You know, and that's that's called self-responsibility. In other right. words, I take responsibility for it. I get that when you go in the healthcare field, you got you got to make money for the hospitals and the and the, the system. You got a schedule to keep. You got people that basically when your phone goes off or you get a text and you got to go to an emergency, you've got to do that. But you also, as you found out, have to kind of slow down and take care of yourself. Because if you right. don't take care of you, number one, you're going to be no good to nobody else. Absolutely. Zero, zero good. The drinking, the this, the that, everything that happened to you. You're a perfect poster child for probably what's happening in many cases. And you state that the Healthcare Anonymous is an open-hearted book, a caring uh, via section of the illness that is real and worth talking about. How difficult has it been for you to express your own feelings about this epidemic uh, in the healthcare community? And it, I would presume that it is, but it's kind of a quiet one. It's like a under wrestling one, you know. Yeah, uh, it's a, um, not easy um, because it's admitting. I mean, especially for a guy like me whose ego was bigger than everybody else. Um, I think it's it's it it takes a certain um, uh, humility and and there's a difference between um, you know um, trying to be um, humble and try to uh, explain things that have happened to you. So true humility is when you decide to speak for the greater good, and that and that when that switch when that switch has happened 
for me to say, listen, I'm not, say if I sell zero book, I don't really care about it. I mean, to me, it's a message that is bigger and, and, and actually extends to more than healthcare um, because a lot of people are suffering out there in environments like this. I mean, we're hearing, I have a friend who I was just talking to as a formal athlete, uh, a former athlete. I mean, any high intensity environment where you're sort of forced into a lot of those things that you have to perform where you have to be perfectionist, we have to exerse, exercise some perfectionism are to some extent that have the common themes. And so starting to speak up about it, like you hear for, you know, I think it's Simone Biles, you know, during the Olympic or some of that sort of real true vulnerability is, is not easy. And, 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 you know, I'm a better doctor than I am and I am now than I was doing 400 cases a year, you know, um, trying to just crank to be the better, the best, you know, that the world has ever seen people. Now I, now I, um, now I know my patients. I, I, you know, I have plan A, plan B, plan C. It's not just a, a factory. It's so in some ways, you know, it is, it is sort of a way to, for, it was very difficult, but then as the growth process occurs through self-care, through self-responsibility, um, through, throughout the journey, then you, you realize after a while that you really transform into something different and, 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 my interaction, the way I work now, I would, I wished I would have known that, you know, 10 years ago and, and some part of my training and some part of my, um, of me evolving within the system. And that's the same thing within a company or within the, um, within sports or within, you know, part of me would have liked to know what I know now. And so that was the intent of of the book to try to describe something that was bigger than myself and and as i sort of uh did that and it became easier to to uh to express i know what i went through well you know this is your own healing journey let's face it and you do want to sell books because you want people to hear the message yet on the other hand what's most important is simon's journey right and I, and I question for you, and I'm sure through all of your therapy that you've gone through, uh, this has been brought up. But hey, look, this is a podcast show. I have hundreds of thousands of people that go through never being enough. You know, I don't know when that occurred for you, but for the most part, somewhere, parents, school, something, usually people like you that are that driven. I know because I had the same disease, okay? But I had to learn how to repair it to be able to live with myself because the ego was big, the issues were big, the pain, the anxiety attacks I was having, real in elevators, couldn't go see clients because these anxiety attacks would think, and I was thinking I was having a heart attack. And, you know, look, I've been been through all of it. But the one thing that did calm me was, I went to Scripps in La Jolla and they put all these electrodes all over my head and they put them on my hands and fingers and they, they and I could see the attack. I saw it on the screen. It was real. You know, it was okay. like, this is what's going on. Your heart rate's going up, your blood pressure's going up, all that. And I started meditating way back and I never stopped. And I never had another anxiety attack after that. Yeah. So, <laughs> So my question to you is, have you identified at what point in your life you weren't enough because you had to excel and be better and always, you know, write 
160 articles versus, you know, 25 articles. Um, so what, what, what was that you identified? Cause you must know now. Yeah, I think I, I've hit the, I mean, uh, it was progressive again. I, you know, I, I talk, I try to really, I was, I was going to bring up that concept. We become, um, in these high intensity environment where you have to study, you have to practice a lot, where you have to you know, in, engage yourself fully into your work. You, 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 you have this thing called I, in the book I talked about, but delayed gratification becomes a really big factor. And, and let, let me explain what that means, but you, you always, and that's a bit what you were saying. You, you always, you become expert at saying, I'll be happy when, um, when I publish, right. When books. I sell a m- million books, I'll be I happy when I find the perfect wife. I'll be happy when whatever. I'm going out with this model, or I'm going to be happy when I have these three cars, and and so. But that I mean, just in healthcare in general, that's how you 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 learn in med school how to function. That's how your brain functions because they tell you even in med school, like you. And then I'm sure it's a lot of that for nurses and other profession, just talking to people, is that um, they tell you this is an investment. You study 100 hours a week because in four years you'll be done. You'll have the MD and then all the doors are opening up. Yeah. And, yeah. and they don't really. It started. You just started. <laughs> it just started and they don't. And, and you finish the residency and then you'll you'll make tons of money and you'll pay all these debts back. And so you become... And, and that translates into your life again in a lot of other areas. You're like, well, you know, I'll be happy when I go on vacation in three weeks. I'll be happy when my wife gets this done, whatever. So 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 you become expert at doing that. And so when I realized that, uh, that's where that's where the healing process started for me. And then yeah. and then to your question more specifically, um, and then what this when I realized that understanding that allow me to become more in the present. So it comes back to your meditation, this sort of mindfulness ability to sort of come back to the present. I do now, you know, realize, realizing that when I was angry at work, it wasn't normal. Like, you know, it was a, a, a ang- anger is not normal. It's a, it's a reflection of, it's an emotion that you can't contain, right? So, the, so it's the same thing as crying or anything. So if you're at work angry all the time, you know, it's because of the deeper thing. So once I realized that there was this deeper gra- issue that I was an expert in delayed gratification, that some of the things, I mean, were upon me to correct and, and that started healing. And it took, I mean, it, I hit the point where I just hit the cliff. I mean, I couldn't do the work. It had probably two or three years ago where uh, I got divorced. I was 60 pounds heavier. I mean, I had all these responsibilities I was the chair of this, president of that, you know, on, on a paper every two weeks, uh, student teaching, you know, teacher of the year. I just had so much stuff going on. And uh, and yet I had the feeling that I wasn't accomplishing enough, you know. Well, and you know, Simon, that you know, because you've studied this, the anger does nothing to help your own heart. Absolutely. Uh, so. I mean, you've seen plenty of people come in that you've done surgeries on. And if you were to probably profile them, you would find there was lots of anger somewhere along the way. I and I, I interviewed Ram Dass. So I throw this up. Be here now. This sits on my desk and I have a now clock 
on my wall that you can't see, but there's actually no time on it. It basically just says now, right? And I always remember what, what, um, you know, Ram Dass would say about that. And, and it is so important. Um, God bless him. He's now deceased, but that the journey he went on to actually explore and to find that, and it isn't for everybody, but what is for everybody is a middle path. You know, if, if you're going to go down this road, there's, you know, the body, as you know, you've studied it enough, it seeks homeostasis. It's right. like, okay, I, I want to come back to the middle ground. Great. I can go exert myself and ride my bike a hundred miles, or I can climb Mount Everest. I'm doing a book right now with another author on Everest. It's climbed it uh, three times. The reality is, is to live, sometimes you have to face death. I know that's a conundrum, but to right. really live life, you face death. I know you've had plenty of patients that have faced death. They've come back. And the question is, are they living their life? And my next question is, is you were told by a friend and a mentor, uh, John Byrne, that there's a very few fine line between confidence, uh, overconfidence, and arrogance. Uh, you state that you recognize that these traits would become the source of your most significant personal and professional failures. Can you explain the challenges you have had as a heart surgeon and trying to balance your life and understanding how important those traits are? Yeah. The uh, I'd say again. I'm I'm sorry. I, I make those comparisons quite a bit. In order to make a performance or to achieve a certain level of of expertise in anything, you do have to have confidence. You do have to have. I mean, when the when I do surgery, there's. I mean, that's published data. There's hundreds of decisions a minute that I take. Uh, I take one path and, and instead of the other to to heal someone. And during an operation for four and a half hours, that will lead to a favorable outcome. And so if I hesitate for every one of those decisions, if someone fibrillates, if someone codes during a surgery or someone have to redo a bypass or there's a valve that don't work or there's a problem with the heart and lung machine, if I hesitate in that process, then it will lead to different outcome. And so for me, for a heart surgeon, it's a bit of a typical, it's a bit of a harder field to understand because in medicine, I mean, every, everything has emergencies, and, and but when things don't go well for us, it's pretty devastating for patients. If the heart don't work, then not a whole lot of things work. Right. And so you need to, uh, it's just like someone who goes to the Olympics and, and trains for how, how long to, to perform, right? So you, you, you do have this, you do have to have this ability to, Lock it in and make decisions. Um, now, and it and it's <laughs> I call it the God complex in the in the uh, in the book. But this this ability really is pretty close to some other uh, traits that are not quite as as uh, um, favorable for in general. Meaning uh, this God complex where you feel like you're invincible. You feel like you it's easy to get into those uh, mindset because your job entails so much decision-making, you know, so that you become in your everyday life, a bit, this sort of automated robot that works in the same way. Right. So, so, and, and that's where the, 
the confidence switches to arrogance a little bit where you need to you need to shove your opinion and your ideas and your and your way of thinking onto everybody and then and then even further uh, then the perception changes so there's confidence overconfidence and an arrogance where then the perceived uh you know way by the way you're acting is perceived by others to be all for you or for the all all for your own benefits and that's where i think this this is a moving line that's very hard to make specifically for, for people that work in this very high intensity environment. And then for me, for me, it was always about being the best about perfectionism, about, you know, there was no way I was going to go in any other specialty than heart surgery because it was, it was the pinnacle of heart of surgery of medicine. You know, it, it was like making life or death decision and, and, And it just it just fitted my personality, but now retrospectively, it really doesn't because <laughs> yeah. I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm not like this. And so I wish in med school there would be a better way to fit in people into what they're truly are. Because I, I, I mean, I'm a loving individual. I'm someone that has a, a lot of friends. I'm social. I'm I I tend to be a bit soft, you know, when 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 people really know me, like my wife or close friends. And so when I came to work, it was this part of me that just switched into like beast mode, you know, not at the, you know, and, and so I needed to accomplish, I needed to like be always on top of things. And so that part to me, what, I mean, and then, so then, then what I did, you can leave work, you can change work. Uh, for me, then I, I, it was to find a job now that fulfills my interests, that fulfills a certain like level of, of decision-making like this, but that is much less of a high intensity work so that it doesn't bring out this part of me that is just hard to work with, you know? Well, you know, you're juggling a lot and, and I can't hardly even imagine what it must like, like, but being an actor on the stage of life, you know, you've got a role as a husband, you got a role as a physician, you've got a role as maybe a father whatever it might be, but you're playing a role. And what you're having to do is shift up those roles. And the one role you play as a physician, the way you're explaining it was extremely stressful. You had to come in making decisions. And how do you explain away in your own life as a physician, not, you're not going to save every patient and you're going to have questions as you left. Well, if I had made a right turn, it would have been better. Or a left turn, I would have done something. Right. How much is it that you, your spirituality, fate, whatever you want to big it up to, because you've got to go on to the next case. You've got to tell the wife and the kids that the dad didn't make it or whatever it might be, or grandpa didn't make it or grandma or whatever. And I can't imagine that, but how do you reconcile that? in your own mind, because it's not like Simon did anything wrong. Simon did everything he could. It just didn't work. You know, that happened. I mean, I hate to say it, but you know, like shit happens. Um, and the reality is you have to have as a physician, I think some way to explain it. What, what would you tell our audience? Cause that's gotta be a very unique position to be in. Yeah, it's weird because and then and then you're asked to do that too, right? You're sort of faced uh, with with life or death commonly in what we do in emergencies and things, and sometimes some some of those decisions lead to a bad outcome, and um, and 
And I, as long, so the way I'll answer this in twofold, in twofolds, the way I've, um, I've decided to live this for myself is that um, if I make the decisions that put the patient first, meaning um, that it's not about the hospital finances, that it's not about the way I feel, it's not about the perceived perception. As long as I'm trying to do what's best for the patient, and that includes um, knowing the literature, that includes uh, you know doing the pre-op assessment uh, correctly, that includes uh, um, telling them or having them understanding the risk of a certain intervention, having them on board with the surgery. So as long as I do that right, um, and I feel like during the surgery, I've performed the best of my ability because I'm not stressed, because I'm not sleep deprived, because I'm not hangover. Right. I feel like in that, in my mind, I can live with that. Now, then to, to answer your question now, uh, how do I deal it when it happens, when things don't go well? The, the classic behavior is to, is to is, and that's where every failure happens or every miscontent you have at work is to ignore it. That was pretty easy. You know, before I, I didn't sit with it, you know. Uh, I've had death. I mean, recently a couple of patients in a row and, and very tough cases and uh, or bad aortic rupture that died in the operating room or what we have to call in the family. I would typically leave the room. I would, I mean, I would be like acting like, gosh, I really did everything I could. You guys deal with that. Now he's not, he didn't make it. I'm out, you know? And it really, and it didn't occur to me that I would learn and the family would appreciate it if, uh, and that would sort of help me secondarily if I would sit with it. And sitting with it is not trying to explain to people what you did, what you did wrong. It's not, it's something just to be there. And 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 just and sit with the emotions, sit with the pain, sit with the suffering, and and I realized over the last, and that's been more recent. I'd say the last twenty four months, where I really exercised that sort of this this uh, this behavior of sitting with things. That oftentimes the transition for families is much easier, and uh, because they see the humanity, and actually at the end of those. Of, of those moments, oftentimes I find that the family is actually consoling me, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and so, and, and so I, I, I've actually grown into this to, to say, to say, you know what, like I, I, and then I stayed in the operating room last. Like I know, I remember one specific event two, three years ago where a patient died in the operating room, it's awful because the family comes, it's sterile, it's cold, you know, they, come and see behind the curtains, their family members who just died and swollen and up there, a big surgery. And I remember after we all prayed together and things in the room, I used to stay there with them in the corner. And I still receive letters every year from that family of, you know, thank you. We really had a good transition. It was a tough moment. So, so I, I would say in any conflicts like this or any big event, and it took me years to understand. I mean, I'm, I'm like 20 some years I mean, I'm 15 years in practice, but I've done this now for 20 some years. It took me, when you think about it, 18 years plus to 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 not just be the passing by strategist, you know, that just say, okay, everything's gone now. You know, I've, I've done my job. Let's move on. But part of your job is helping family transition to to comfort and to get over a certain thing too. Because you're, yeah, you didn't really save the, and that really helped me 
getting over that that uh, those tragic moments? Well, I think you know. Look, I have a like you. I don't have as many degrees as you do, but one of the degrees I have is in spiritual psychology, and I have some friends that are chaplains, and I understand the importance of that healing time. And what you're doing is healing you as much as it's, as you said, healing them. And it allows you to continue, and pardon me for saying this, but I'll use the word craft. Uh, You're like an artist. Um, I used to have uh, uh, plastic surgeon uh, clients, you know, and they would have the pictures of the people that they're going to fix and how they're going to fix them and, you know, how they're going to do their artwork, right? How they're going to make this happen. And I think what you do is even more difficult um, because of, you know, the intensity of what you're under and keeping someone alive. But what you're doing now is really important. And you speak about, again, this healthcare system has changed over the years and how it has contributed to the burnout of residents. You were once a resident. I'm sure you can remember back to that. Um, what are the factors that you believe lead to the burnout and what can hospitals and the healthcare industry do to change the problems? And you, you listed on page 50 in the book, I even put a P50 on there, um, these things, because there's, we have many listeners. We're going to have people like Quint Studer listening to this, and we're going to have people that are nurses listening to this or other doctors listening to this from Simon's perspective perspective what do you think needs to happen yeah um you know i think so a lot of things are already happening i think there is a movement now for that that residents and students are burnout and then i mean there's 60 percent of of residents in cardiac surgery plus that fitted in this most recent study uh criteria for depression while in training right that's huge right Mm -hmm. Uh, and so um, now there's working hours restrictions. You can't be, we, we used, when I was training, you could do a hundred and some hours a week. Plus there was no restriction on that. You could be, um, you could be um, on call all night, not sleep. And you couldn't go home in the next morning. You would never ask to go home in the morning. Cause that was your time to do surgery, you know? Um, so it's it, like airline pilot. Now you can't yeah. just keep flying. No, you right? can't keep flying, but it was, it was a an unknown. Um, I mean, it was like an unsaid rule before, where if you left in the morning at eight after a night call, and you were scheduled to do surgery the next day, you probably your ability to find a job was going to be zero. I mean, you know, because people would sort of uh, put you in a, this sort of bucket of people that you know are not working hard enough, you know, and so uh, and so now that's changed. Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the call needs to change as well. Um, you know, those, those moments where you serve, you know, and you're sort of at the mercy of a call or beeper. Um, I mean, by definition, right, the call is, is sort of a risk factor for burnout. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're working many hours at night. You're sleep deprived. I mean, the whole, the acronym HALT, right? You're hungry all the time. I mean, you, you know, finding food is sort of a, so uh, it, it becomes a challenge, you know, you eat and it's too much work to do. So uh, you're hungry all the time. You're angry all the time because you get you get to be caught up in the system. You're lonely because oftentimes it's like at night, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're tired. So, I mean, HALT is what they use in these addictions. You know, the, um, the, uh, uh, 
HALT is, is, a, is an acronym that they use for rehab, right? Uh, if you if you get into this halt you know system, so realizing that that's an important factor for for burnout for people that have been you know struggling, and, and then you can act upon those things. You can I mean you can respectfully and professionally ask for a schedule and and put certain limits to your to your schedule. I mean I think hospitals need to hire more people. They need we need to continue forcing on that. Um, they need, to, I mean, sometimes providing lunches is to provide help. I mean, we, we've done some changes where I work, where we provide some meditation every week. We provide some lunches, healthy stuff. Uh, just realizing that the call and the work that we do at times is just not normal. And I think, yeah, I think um, not normal, meaning not nine to five not sort of a time where people need to have dedicated time to eat. And we shouldn't resent as a culture people for wanting to do that and, and, uh, and teach perhaps in, in school tricks and tips, how to survive, you know, in a call or how to survive on a night shift. And I think it's a complete disaster. My ex-wife, uh, who's now is a great friend, She's, which is an accomplishment in itself, but, you know, now that I think about it, but, but the, um, you know, her schedule still in the nursing, if you're not, if you don't have like a history at this hospital, if you're a specialized nurse, you basically start over at night again, right? Like you were 18 years old, whatever, you know, when, so, so that doesn't make sense to me. You're trying to attract people with experience. You tell them up front, you know what, you got to, you got to do, you know, for three years, you got to do from the, the night shift, you know, how does this, like, how is this compatible with life? And so I think the system needs to think it differently. You know, the, the, the say, well, maybe we rotate, everybody does it, you know, and it's not, if you haven't been there for 20 years, you can, you can just choose the, the shift before everybody's, you know, during the day. And then you let well, the, the thing, Simon, that, that we know there's a healthcare shortage of healthcare workers, right? It's just, and then the pandemic just exasperated it. And it exasperated your heart surgery even more because they were postponed. And that kind of leads me to this next question. You speak in the book about the overall decline of cardiac surgery in the U.S. and the increase of the mortality after cardiac um, or artery bypass surgery during pandemic. Uh, were um, And they, because of the postponement, look, People weren't going in for, quote, voluntary surgeries. I can't imagine that the coronary bypass surgery is voluntary, but to some degree it is, I'm sure. How did the pandemic exacerbate the problem? And what has the fallout been to physicians like yourself because of the pandemic? And we can speak about it in general terms, but you can speak about it also specifically as it relates to your profession as a heart or cardiac surgeon. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing we're seeing delayed presentations. People wait longer, you know, when they have chest pain to show up, and you know, uh, time is is money, you know, for the heart. So if you have chest pain and have a heart attack, I mean, if you show up later, there's it limits your our, our ability. If often patients are sicker, the heart has had damage, and so that's for, for sure one factor. Um, when when pe- people get shorter breath. They oftentimes, I mean, what we see is now the go-to reflex is to say, oh, that's COVID. You know, I'm sort of coughing, I'm short of breath. That's COVID. And we now see that 
I mean, that's the main symptoms for us, right? People have valve problem, they have a heart attack, they have, and so shortness of breath, oftentimes it's missed. People have been in the hospital somewhere uh, being treated for, you know, COVID, you know, quote unquote pneumonia. And, and, and then we, we realize that that heart's the problem two weeks later and they've been in the ICU and things. And so, um, so that's, uh, and then COVID has brought up a lot of weird stuff too for us. Like the blood is more thick. Um, we have, we've had some patients have stroke and we have had some patient have, uh, early occlusion of bypasses. And so that's been a problem too. So, I mean, it's changed the practice a little bit, uh, but yet, you know, the, the community doesn't support us, you know, cause we, I do the same thing day in, day out, you know, but people are dying more, you know? So it's, uh, you know, it, it's tough to live through that. And, and we don't really talk about that much because in, in the book, what you're referring to, I talk about this article, they say, well, you know, it's being more difficult. People are dying more they, um, from COVID and, and from heart surgery after COVID more than you would expect. But yet, you know, nobody talks about what impact this has on teams and on the surgeon. I mean, I remember that week, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, where I lost two patients the same day of weird stuff, like, uh, you know, all the bypasses occluded. And, and then we find out the patient had COVID a month ago. And then that's probably what the cause is. And then, um, and then another one having another complication. And yet I was sitting in my office and I'm like, God, I, I, what, I, what am I doing here? Like what, what happened? And, and I was like lost. I had lost confidence. I was sad. And this article, they talk about the impact on residents, on the system, on the, nobody talks about what, what it has on your mental health and, and especially when it's been going on for two years, you know? So, uh, and then now we're seeing, <laughs> we're seeing a lot of people, nurses and doctors saying to hell with it. I'm just going to go and do temporary assignments because doing this day in, day out, it's just not, I just can't do it anymore. Well, it's obviously the pandemic has had a huge impact on the healthcare system and it's, you know, it's just, it's crazy. Uh, in kind of wrapping up our interview, though, I want to ask you kind of a twofold question. One, you speak about the psychological manifestations from the healthcare disease, and you tell stories about fellow physicians who are faced with it as well. And your estimation, so the two-part question, how can the healthcare system reinvent itself so that it's more compassionate, understanding, and is a community community of support for the brave doctors and surgeons and nurses and other workers in the field? And the second part of that question is, you created a roadmap, a step-by-step program program toward recovery. Um, What is that plan and how can other healthcare professionals avail themselves of your step-by-step program? I know they can go to the website, healthcareanonymous.com. So two-point question, first part and the second part. Right. Well, in regards to that first part, I think there's a lot of work within the system um, to change the culture, to change the perception, to open up the conversation, create a community of support, not just about heart surgeon, but nursing, uh, you know, to favor the sort of long haul, not to make any relation with COVID, but right. long haul treatment of, of the problem, uh, as opposed to this to treating the acute moment. I think the system is pretty good about recognizing when people drink too much, when people can't get up, go to work, uh, recognizing the acute moment, but the prevention of it, uh, whether it's facilitating some time, helping people with their kids, you know, at work and, 
and uh, is not very good about recognizing early problems. And so fostering this, and I think some companies and some tech companies are even are probably better about doing that or preventing or you know fostering that environment of you know having a gym or having good food or having a Friday jeans or having. I mean, healthcare in that way is a bit healthcare systems in that way flagging old school. You know, yeah. lagging a bit behind yeah. favoring. I mean, I was just reading this business, Harvard Business Review on hybrid work and how most of the tech companies and some companies, 90% of them won't go back to the usual sort of getting to work and with your lunch every day and driving through traffic. I mean, they've realized that it's more profitable for someone to be on site, you know, when, and when they have to, and then meetings, uh, telemedicine, telecommunication, things have really taken over. Satisfaction has improved. Turnover, turnover has decreased. I mean, we're, we're complaining about turnover in medicine a lot. People change jobs. The nurses go, you know, they, they go to other jobs. I mean, first is to pay and reward the, the experience, but also it's to favoring some of that hybrid models, right? So I have my kids on Friday. I, you know, I can, I can do the work from home from telemedicine and, and, and that. And that way, uh, in that way, the uh, medicine is hard to adapt those cultures. So that's that's yeah. the first. Point. Yeah. And then when get, it comes, to, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I agree with you. I've I've worked in the healthcare field, so I understand it. It is it's old fashioned. Uh, it is it is reinventing itself. I think the culture that it pervades is the biggest factor, and it's I'm not just the culture with healthcare administrators, but truly. When I say this, hospital administrators, I should say, uh, it's truly pervasive in the whole culture. The cultures have to shift for everything else to shift. And I think they've had a very difficult time trying to do that. Right. And it's and it's coming back now when the people were forced out of the system. Now they're asking to come back. I mean, I'm very fortunate here. That's part of the reason why I took the work here. But um, I have three partners who think the same uh, are very tech savvy or very sort of forward into the hybrid work. And so we, among us, have proposed to the hospital, they were having trouble with keeping people within the system, within the system, because people were, you know, changing after three or four years and things leading to other places. Yeah. Listen, we're going to commit to stay here, but here's what we want. You know, I want, we want this time off. We want telemedicine to work. We, when I'm going to be here, I'm going to operate. I want my time to be optimized. And we're all three, you know, the same and, and focus on. So I'm very fortunate. So people need to propose to their system some more hybrid work like that. And in regards to your second point, I mean, I propose in the book a step program, right? It, it's basically summarizing the things that have helped me, um, you know, in, in five general steps and then plus one. And so I... Uh, uh, I actually, um, you know, I, I, you know, taking a pause, reassessing values, um, sort of, uh, you know, virus checking yourself on a daily basis, uh, you know, forgiving and not being resentful. So there's a couple of things in there to help people get through a stage if they have these acute moments. And I do open up the conversation. I, I do give the book uh, room. I, I actually invited people to give stories about their uh, their experience, which I yeah. think is going to help a lot of people. It's not just doctors, it's nursing, it's um, administrators, it's uh, technicians. Um, and so we have family doctors, specialists. And so uh, very helpful. We have a, a, a wife that talks about her, her husband who died, 
you know, I remember that story. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I think that there's a lot of powerful stuff, but people will recognize themselves. Um, and then what we're trying to do further, um, I've created a, a, a working group uh, called, you can go to breakthroughpoints.com. It's basically a, a coaching system or a group of people that have gotten together to uh, help people get through um, and work in a better uh, and better homostasis within these high intensity environment, with its healthcare, whether it's business, whether it's and it's uh, the program has a lot of steps. But we 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 follow people six months. We propose sort of one on one coaching. We have uh, teaching sessions, um, and because I think a lot of the a lot of uh, growing comes from understanding the environment and and how it works and then how does people work and what it leads to. So uh, we have, we are, we're creating, you're trying to create a movement to try to open up a forum. And certainly that, that is a, that is going to be, I think the book is one thing, but it's a stepping stone to creating a movement to help people. Well, I think you've done a great job of summarizing it for all my listeners out there that are in the healthcare field that want to learn more, go get a copy of this. Uh, He gave two websites. We'll put links to both of them. Uh, The first one is uh, healthcareanonymous.com. You can learn more about Simon there. He has uh, bonus packages with bundles. So if you want to like distribute this to people in the hospital, you know, get a hundred copies circulated around. And I can come actually, I offer a program where we come to, we do like a SWAT approach visit to your, your hospital. So we come and, and do like an, a 360 analysis, suggest some things that we can do to improve, you know, in the environment and help people and things like that. We do breath work and things like that. So there's uh, there's information on there to help. Well, the Breakthrough Points is the other website that we'll right. put a link to. Um, and, you know, when you talked about breath work, I think I spoke with him. My son just got certified in somatic breathing. Um, he's doing the uh, what is it? Meinhof, Himhoff, the guy that goes in the yep, cold yep. water. Yep. Yeah. So, and, and it does work because this, the, yeah, it, it works tremendously well. Um, uh, Simon, just a pleasure having you on speaking about your book, your own personal journey. Usually the stories that people tell are really what um, it, they actually bring up in people um, the best parts, meaning Hey, these are things that, oh, I relate to Simon. I was going through this same thing, or I I had a problem with this as well. So for all of you who could relate to Simon's story, you then need to go get the book. You need to go to Breakthrough Points. You need to go to Healthcare Anonymous. Um, pleasure having you on. Uh, thank you so much. And um, as we said, be here now. Take a big, deep breath. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.